joy to be back with you once again. Uh, I feel privileged to be here. I have really enjoyed getting to know uh, a number of you already. Uh, and uh, for those who weren't here last week, uh, I'm from Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, I serve at uh, Jefferson Park Baptist Church as an associate pastor. Um, and we are thankful for you all. We will be praying for you as a church. And uh, please remember us as well in your prayers. Uh, this morning, I would like to turn our attention to 1 Samuel chapter 15. <clears throat> and while you are turning there, uh, I'd like to just briefly mention to you uh, that there is such a thing as fruit sins, and there are root sins. Uh, if you've been a Christian for some time, or if you're familiar uh, with the Bible, the, the terminology may be new, but the concept certainly will not be. Uh, fruit sins are those outward behaviors that we can see. Uh, these are sins such as angry outbursts, uh, sexual immorality, lying, stealing, uh, disobedience to parents or authorities. But we also know that sin comes from the heart, that there are root sins, those hidden sins of our hearts such as covetousness, greed, lust, worry or fear, uh, hatred and anger. Um, and I would argue that deepest down, uh, you will find three great root sins, which really are at the bottom of all sin. Uh, and I would argue that those three are pride, selfishness, and unbelief. All three of these have to do with the very way in which we view the world. Uh, pride is having too high a view of yourself. Uh, selfishness is having too low a view of others. And unbelief is having too low a view of God. And what I want, one of the things I, I think uh, will become clear as we go through 1 Samuel 15 uh, is that there are devastating effects when we are oblivious to the root sins in our life. When we only consider the fruits of sin and in our repentance pay no attention to the roots. Uh, and so that's one of the things that I want us to be thinking about as we uh, dive into this passage. So it's a longer passage. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing right now. I'm going to read it in sections. We're just going to walk through section by section. Uh, so section one, uh, we're going to look at Saul's commission. Uh, this is verses one through three. So 1 Samuel 15, verses one through three, Saul's commission. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have, and do not spare them, but kill 
both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So we see here that Saul is clearly commissioned by God to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites. Uh, God had anointed him king uh, through Samuel. This was back in chapter 10, just a few chapters before. And initially, you may remember Saul is anointed king. Some of the people are unimpressed, but Saul leads them to an early victory. And now uh, the, all of the nation of Israel has been firmly established in his hand. So Saul has been established as the king. And Samuel says, in light of this, hear the word of the Lord. Go and be an instrument of of God's justice against the Amalekite people. And verse 2 says, this is, God says, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. Uh, This refers back to Exodus 17. So this is when Moses is leading the Israelites out of Egypt. And this is the story when they're attacked by the Amalekites. Moses holds the staff of God over his head and then his arms get tired and so Aaron and her prop up his elbows. Uh, that was the Amalekites. And they had come and attacked Israel, uh, an unprovoked attack. They'd attacked the rear, targeting the weak and the weary. Uh, and back in Exodus 17, verse 16, God said, uh, The Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And here we are generations later, and God is fulfilling that word. Now, for some of you, uh, the fact that God commands Saul to go and utterly destroy everyone, even the little children, the infants, uh, that may seem shocking, that may raise questions. And uh, right now, I'm not going to satisfactorily address those many questions. Uh, I'll be happy to talk with any of you afterward more about that. I'm sure your pastor would be glad to talk with you in more detail. Uh, But for now, I just want to say that when we think about this, we have to understand God sees the heart. And contrary to what many in our culture today may say, the hearts of all people, including infants, are sinful. Infants are not pure. And the reality is, the amazing thing is not that God would take the life of anyone. It's that in His mercy and grace, He allows sinners like us to live at all. And so we need to keep that in mind. This is God exercising His justice. Now, there's one other thing that I want to comment on as we think about this commission that God has given Saul. And what I want to do is sort of zoom out from this particular story for a moment and think about the broader picture, the the bigger narrative of Scripture, uh, because this is not just about Amalek and Israel. And, and Israel. Uh, this is really about this conflict that has been unfolding through all the pages of Scripture between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and God's promise to send a Messiah or a Deliverer. So just for a few moments, I want to give you some background here. And to do that, we need to go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, this is right after Adam and Eve have sinned against God. 
They've listened to the lie of the serpent. They've sinned and God now comes to confront the serpent and Eve and Adam. And he begins with the serpent and he says, Cursed are you, you shall go on your belly, you shall eat dust. And then in verse 15, while he's speaking to the serpent, God said, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now there's two parts to this statement I want to unpack very briefly. So the first, God says that he will put enmity or conflict or war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And this is a major theme that we see repeated and unpacked all through the Bible. Immediately after that, we see Cain and Abel. Here's Cain who is of the evil one. He is the seed of the serpent. And he murders his brother Abel, the seed of the woman. Uh, we see it in Ham when he mocks Noah. Uh, we see it with Ishmael persecuting Isaac. Uh, we see it with Esau uh, wanting to kill Jacob. Uh, we see it with Joseph's brothers wanting to kill Joseph, although Judah later repents. Uh, we see it with Pharaoh uh, in Egypt enslaving and seeking to kill the children or the seed of Israel. And then we see it in God's judgment against the Pharaoh and against Egypt in killing their firstborn sons, their seed. Um, and another, we could go on with many more examples, but here we see it in the Amalekites attacking Israel. Back in Exodus chapter 17. Uh, then later Balaam is prophesying, and he prophesies against Amalek, how God will destroy them. And then we see this passage, and then if you go even further forward, you see Haman in the book of Esther, and it's pointed out Haman was an Agagite, which seems he is a descendant of King Agag of Amalek. When God says there will be war with Amalek through generations, this is being unpacked. And this is part of this greater narrative of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and the enmity that is between them. Now in Genesis 3.15, not only is there this enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, but there's a promise. And God speaks of a particular seed who will deliver the seed of the woman by crushing the head of the serpent, and in the process, his heel will be bruised or crushed. And so the natural question that we should be asking as we get to Genesis 3.15 is, well, who is this deliverer going to be? Who is this seed who will crush the head of the serpent? And you notice all through the book of Genesis and on through the Old Testament, there is a specific line of descent being traced. As there's this building anticipation, who is the seed going to be? And then every person gets to, well, it's not them. But there's a particular descendant that's drawn attention to. And we see it traced from Adam to Seth to Noah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah. And the genealogies, and it's all tracing it through. And it keeps referring us back to Genesis 3.15. Now my point in bringing up all this background is to help us see that when we come here to 1 Samuel 15, that should be in our mind. 
that this conflict between Israel and Amalek, it refers back to the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And when we come to Saul, who has been anointed to lead God's people as their king, the question we should be asking is, will he be the one who trusts and obeys God and therefore crushes the head of the serpent and delivers God's people? Or will he choose disobedience and thereby fall prey to the serpent like Adam and Eve and like so many others? So, we've seen Saul's commission. Go utterly destroy Amalek. Let's look next at Saul's failure. Verses 4 through 9. Verse 4. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Teleim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Now, by the way, Moses' father-in-law Jethro was a Kenite. So it seems likely that that would be the kindness Saul is referring to when Jethro came and he gave Moses advice. Don't try to judge everything yourself. Appoint rulers and so forth. Um, And secondly, by the way... um, in Numbers chapter 24, verses 21, 20 and 21, Balaam prophesies exactly about this. And Balaam had said, uh, it says, Then he looked on Amalek, and he took up his oracle and said, Amalek was first among the nations, but shall be last until he perishes. Then he looked on the Kenites, and he took up his oracle and said, Firm is your dwelling place, and your nest is set on the rock. And I just mentioned that to say, whether Saul knew it or not, he's bringing into exact fulfillment God's word. Verse 7, And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But... Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So the key point here is that Saul and the people were unwilling to obey God's word. They gave a halfway obedience, which is really disobedience. Motivated by what seems to be covetousness and greed, they swoop down on the spoils rather than devoting them to destruction as God had commanded. And Saul also spares Agag. This could have been for political reasons or it could have been to parade him as a trophy of war. But the key point is that Saul fails to obey God's word. He fails to be the deliverer who will crush the serpent's head. Let's look at our third section. So we've seen Saul's commission, Saul's failure, now Saul's denial. Verses 10 through 21. 
Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel. And he cried out to the Lord all night. And just notice Samuel's deep grief and concern for Saul and for Israel. He cries all night. Verse 12, So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself, and he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. So Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and brought back Agag king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So we read that Samuel is told by the Lord of Saul's disobedience. Samuel goes looking for Saul, and he finds him gallivanting around as if nothing is wrong, as if he has successfully obeyed God's word, and Samuel confronts him. And then look at Saul's response. First, there's outright denial. Verse 20, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. You know, I basically did what God said. You know, not precisely or exactly, but close enough. That's Saul's attitude. But then this denial, it shifts to an excuse. Verse 21, but the people took of the plunder, the sheep and the oxen. It wasn't me, it was the people. You know, he's not taking responsibility as the leader. He's shifting the blame. And then this excuse um, is then added to the excuse comes a justification. And he says the people did this to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Right? As if sacrifice were a valid substitute for obedience. As if maybe God just hadn't considered all the possible things we could have done with the spoils. And surely he would be pleased with a sacrifice. Surely this would improve on the explicit commandment I received. And, and by the way, do we ever do that? 
do we think that we can substitute something for obedience? Um, you know, think about taxes, right? God commands us to pay our taxes. Do we ever think, you know, the government's not making good use of this money. If I could just save some money here, I could give more to the church. I could give more to missions. Surely God would be pleased with that. Uh, what about in evangelism? Right? Do we think, you know, I know what God's word says about the church and about what we're to do and what we're to prioritize, but, you know, the people of our day, they need to be entertained, they need to be attracted. Surely if we just adjust some things, we could get more people to church, we could reach more people with the gospel, and God would be pleased. Do we substitute something for obedience? And friends, anytime we do that, like Saul, we are in denial. You see, we're trying to complicate matters when in reality it's very simple. God's word is clear. We either obey it or we don't. So we've seen Saul's commission. We've seen Saul's failure. We've seen Saul's denial. Let's look now at Saul's rejection. Verses 22 and 23. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Samuel comes to him and he says, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? You know, Saul, nothing can take the place of obedience. God does not desire sacrifice. He desires obedience. God does not need anything. He cannot be bribed. There is nothing that you could come up with, no substitute that would be better. God knew what He wanted when He commanded you what to do. And you have disobeyed. And then verse 23, He says, Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And I think what Samuel's doing here is he's pointing to sins that he knows Saul understands how terrible they are. And he's saying, Saul, what you have done is just as bad. You know, we know that Saul put out the soothsayers and mediums uh, out of the land. He understood the evil of witchcraft. He understood the evil of idolatry. But what he doesn't understand is that his disregard for God's Word has a common core with that sin. It's the same thing. You see, deep down, all sin is fundamentally opposition to God and hatred for God. All sin leads to the same place in the end. And ironically, though Saul now probably thinks, oh, I would never participate in witchcraft. That is terrible. What I've done is nothing. That's bad. Well, ironically, later in Saul's life, in fact, the night before he dies, he goes to a medium. His sin carries him all the way to doing what he thought was unthinkable. 
And so we see that because of this, because Saul has rejected God's word, and rejecting God's word is tantamount to rejecting God, Samuel tells him, God has rejected you from being king. So we've seen Saul's commission, his failure, his denial, his rejection. Let's look next at his replacement. Saul's replacement, verses 24 through 35. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Now that may seem really surprising, but it's not because anything has changed. Okay, Samuel turns back because he has unfinished business with Agag, that he doesn't trust Saul to carry out. So look at verse 32. Then Samuel said, Bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. In other words, Agag seems to know Saul doesn't want to kill him. Uh, Verse 33. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel said, hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So we see here, Saul finally acknowledges his sin, And he admits that he feared the people. But he seems to think that he can simply apologize and then move on. Uh, He doesn't mourn. He doesn't fast. He doesn't pray. He doesn't confess to the people. Rather, he's primarily concerned that Samuel would honor him before the people. Uh, Saul is clearly not grieved for the way his sin has offended God. He's just concerned about the negative consequences his sin will have on himself. And Samuel responds to him very clearly. I want to draw your attention to verse 28. Not only has Saul been rejected, not only has the kingdom been torn away from him today, but Samuel says, God has given the kingdom to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Saul has not only been rejected, but he will be replaced. Now, of course, the immediate fulfillment of this is David. 
If you look down at chapter 16, right after this, we see Samuel sent to anoint David as king. David is this neighbor who is better than Saul. And David will be a better king. A king after God's own heart. But David too will fall. David will fall into adultery, into murder with Bathsheba and Uriah. Um, And David too will fail to be the deliverer who crushes the head of the serpent. And brothers and sisters, we could go all through the Old Testament and even the very best of men fall short of bringing the promise of Genesis 3.15 to pass. Adam fails, Noah fails, Moses fails, all the judges of Israel fail, David fails, Solomon fails. None of them perfectly obey God. None of them are able to crush the head of the serpent. But friends, the final replacement of Saul is not David. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the son of David. You know, Jesus is the one who perfectly obeyed God's word. I mean, he's the one who not only perfectly obeyed God's word, he's the one who is the word of God, the word who became flesh. Uh, Unlike Saul, who tried to substitute sacrifice for obedience, the author of Hebrews tells us concerning Jesus that Jesus said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Jesus is the one who comes and he can say to his disciples, I have food to eat that you know not of. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus could say, I always do those things that please my father. He's the one who resisted every temptation. He's the one who goes to the garden and prays, Father, not my will, but yours be done. He's the one who could say, Father, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. He's the one who perfectly trusted and obeyed God. And not only did he do that, but he offered the perfect sacrifice. The sacrifice that was not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. A sacrifice that was not the blood of bulls or goats or calves, but His own blood. The sacrifice that didn't have to be repeated every single day, month, and year. But the sacrifice that was once and for all. That having been offered, He might rise and sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, friends, Jesus is the true seed of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent. And in the process, having his own heel bruised. That's why it says that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Friends, the good news is that now, for those of us who trust in Christ, we are the seed of the woman who are delivered from Satan. That's why Paul can tell the Roman Christians, and the God of peace 
will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Christ is that one seed who has prevailed on behalf of all the seed of the woman to bring to an end this enmity, this conflict, to set us free. And so friends, the the main point as we come to 1 Samuel 15, and I hope you see how Scripture fits together. You know, it is about how Saul failed and was rejected and how we desperately need a king and a deliverer who will perfectly obey God. But now looking back, we can rejoice knowing that that king and that deliverer has come in Jesus Christ. And if we believe, we will be delivered with him. That is the good news of the gospel. Now finally, um, I want us to spend some time thinking about Saul's repentance, or lack thereof. So we've seen Saul's commission. uh, We've seen his failure, his denial. uh, We've seen Saul's rejection, his replacement. And now finally, let's consider his repentance. So thus far, I have stressed that Saul and David are alike in that they both failed to be the true deliverer of God's people who would crush the head of the serpent. But there's a crucial way in which these two are different as well. You see, David sinned and then genuinely repented. And in so doing, though he was not the true deliverer, he aligned himself with the one who was, the one who is. Saul, by contrast, sins and doesn't repent. In fact, he continues aligning himself with the serpent. Now, for some of you, um, maybe you look at this and that's a bit surprising because you see Saul confessing his sin, saying, I've sinned, I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord. Um, you know, now pardon my sin. He, he, he doesn't completely deny it throughout. He begins to confess. And yet, what I am suggesting to you is that this is not true repentance. And really understand why I say that. I want us to go back to what I said at the beginning about fruit sins and root sins. And what we see in the life of Saul uh, is a man with a very obvious root sin that he never acknowledges, that he never repents of, and therefore he completely misunderstands the seriousness of his sin, and therefore his sin continues to come back again and again and again. I'm sure many of you have had a garden before. You have a yard, and we understand how weeds work. You just go out there and just snip the tops off, You don't pull it up by the roots, they come back worse. And I would suggest to you that that is exactly what we see in the life of Saul. His obvious root sin is pride. Throughout this story, look at his responses. You know, he, first of all, he has the pride of thinking that what God's word says doesn't really have to be exactly obeyed, that he can improve on it, he can adjust it, and he's justified in doing so. 
After the victory, rather than giving God glory and praising God, we read he set up a monument for himself. He's gallivanting around, parading, celebrating himself. Then even after he acknowledges his sin, he pleads with Samuel, yet honor me now before the people. You know, he's claiming, oh yes, I've sinned, but he wants to be honored before the people. He's not really concerned about God's glory and God's honor. He is concerned for his own. It's pride. And what we will see is that this sin continues to plague him. If we continue through the story, what do we find? Well, soon after this, David comes along. And Saul becomes envious of David. And if you remember why, uh, we read about women who are singing this song as they danced, and they're saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And then Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him, and he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. It's pride. It just comes up again and again, and this pride leads him to envy. And this envy of David leads him in absurd ways to try to kill David to the point that even his own children are protecting David from him. You know, to the point that David is seeking, or that Saul is seeking David out. He's chasing him down under this lie that David is out to get me. And he goes in the cave and David just cuts the corner of his robe off and comes out and says, see, I proved to you I wasn't trying to kill you. And Saul breaks down weeping. And he acknowledges his sin. He says, oh, I'm so sorry. I should never have done that. You are righteous and I'm evil. And he goes home. And yet, a few months later, he comes back out pursuing David again. Because in the midst of it all, he never repents of his pride. He just looks at the fruit. Oh, I shouldn't have tried to kill him. He does not deal with the root issue in his life and his life just spirals down into greater and greater sin to find as I said before he seeks out this medium in desperation Samuel appears to him says you're going to die the next morning he goes out to battle and he commits suicide on a battlefield and that is the tragic end of Saul and so friends what about you in your life in the sin as you strive to overcome sin in your life are there, are there those sins that just seem to keep cropping up again and again? And could part of it be that you're really only dealing with the fruits of sin rather than the root? Let me just take one example. Think, think about angry outbursts. You know, is that just owing to a lack of patience? You know, or does that really reveal something about a deep-seated lack of trust in God? Is it just that you need to be more patient in the midst of your circumstances? Or could it be that fundamentally you are not trusting that God is sovereign and that God is good and that God is working through those circumstances for your good? You know, could it, is, it, is that anger just that you need to learn to tolerate others who frustrate you better? Or could it be pointing to the fact that you really have too high a view of yourself and that those other people frustrate you 
Not because you need to learn to tolerate them, but because you have an inordinate pride and an inordinate value and personal importance. And friends, with whatever the sin is, let's take the time to think about what is the root of this? What, what is going on in my heart that is causing this sin to emerge? Now, I don't want to be misunderstood to, to mean that the only genuine repentance is a perfect repentance. Friends, you and I will struggle with pride and selfishness and unbelief as long as we are in this world, until Christ comes back or until we die. Right? We will never be able to just reach down and pull pride completely out of our life. Um, don't misunderstand me. But what I am saying is that as we fight against sin, we need to be delving into our hearts and taking before the Lord, what, what is the real root of this? And how can I just a little bit more a de- cut that root out a little bit deeper and bit by bit root out the pride from our lives, root out the selfishness, root out that lack of faith in God. And by God's grace, we can grow. We can be delivered from that sin. And friends, the last thing I want to say is that coming to grips with the depths of our sin is painful and it's difficult. It's easy to write off sin and say, you know, it's just a mistake. It was just something superficial. But when we see that, no, it's, it goes much deeper. It's difficult. But friends, the good news of the Gospel is that through faith in Jesus Christ, we can have the boldness that it takes to be honest with ourselves, with the Lord, and even with others about the sin that we're fighting. Um, You see, we know we can't hide from Him. But He invites us. Come into the light. Uh, Come to Me who is able to cleanse you of your sin. To forgive you and cleanse you and change you. He knows us. He loves us. He will help us to put that sin behind us that we may know true joy, that we may know deeper fellowship with Him. Friends, that is the good news of the Gospel. That we can be forgiven and we can be delivered. Not because any of us are able to crush the head of the serpent ourselves, but because Jesus Christ has prevailed. He is the deliverer. And through faith in Him, we too can be delivered. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we praise You for Christ, that He has indeed crushed the head of the serpent, and that through faith in Him, we too will be delivered to trample Satan underfoot, uh, to be set free. God, we pray that You would help each one of us to overcome sin in our lives, to walk in greater holiness and purity, to trust You more, to be little in our own eyes, and to know Christ more and more. Lord, that is our prayer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.